Welcome to In Contact with the ACO. I'm Dr. Chris Burrett. Each month, we feature a case presentation, interview, or discussion by one or more of our doctors who practice a different kind of psychiatry. We are interested in your questions and comments, and I would love to hear your feedback. Send an email to aco at organomy.org. If you're interested in attending one of our webinar presentations, you can meet the doctors and join in on the discussion afterwards. You can connect with us and learn more at organomy.org or a different kind of psychiatry.com. This episode features a case from one of our webinars presented by Dr. Phil Heller. He's joined by Dr. Peter Christ for discussion and by me to help facilitate questions from the audience. Dr. Heller discusses a part of Harriet's treatment where her complaining was causing problems in her marital relationship, and we learn how his knowledge of primary versus secondary emotions allowed him to help her successfully. Imagine a balloon filled beyond its capacity and ready to burst from the high internal pressure. Letting some air out will decrease the high internal pressure, which has been threatening to burst the balloon. When we talk about emotions as the equivalent of high pressure in the balloon, they can be experienced by patients as anxiety, doubt, or fear. A patient might even say, doctor, I can't stand this feeling. I'm going to burst with it. When the emotional pressure and stress become intolerable, patients may attempt self-cure to lower the pressure and get relief. This attempt can be constructive and healthy. For example, with effort, physical activity can reduce stress by discharging some of the emotional energy that causes discomfort. Or the discharge could be destructive and neurotic, as seen, for instance, blowing up and screaming at someone. Both examples may reduce the internal pressure of emotions, but without resolving the underlying problem. Negative emotions need to come out in therapy, not in relationships outside of therapy, where they can be destructive. When these emotions are expressed outside of therapy, they function as an emotional leak and can block progress in therapy. This presentation is about a destructive emotional leak, a therapeutic leak in the setting of a patient's therapy. Stopping such a leak can make a tremendous difference in a person's treatment and accordingly in their life. Harriet came to see me for treatment of obsessive thoughts. Her initial complaint when I first met with her was general. I just want to feel better. When I asked her for more detail, she described her obsessive thoughts that were always centered on her need to intervene and protect others from harm. Harriet's thoughts focused on contamination fears regarding herbicides, radiation, and other various toxins, and the effects 
they might have on her four-year-old niece. Her perception had been intermittently distorted by the exaggeration in her mind of exposure risks, such as pesticides her husband used near their tomato garden. She feared that if she did not intervene, it would put others, particularly her niece, at risk of harm. When these thoughts became intense, she often criticized and complained to those closest to her to decrease her anxiety, notably her husband. For example, she badgered her husband with questions and criticisms regarding his use of herbicides until he gave an answer she liked, which rarely happened. Instead, her husband became frustrated, irritated, angry, and silently distant from her. Harriet reacted to her husband's behavior with an increase in her anxiety and obsessive thoughts and feeling physical pressure in her head and chest. This disrupted Harriet's relationship with her husband. When I first saw Harriet, she described all of her suffering with a smile on her face. The content of her story and the expression on her face noticeably did not fit together, but she was not aware of this. Gently, I asked her, do you know what your face looks like? Her smiling gave way to crying with a sad look in her eyes. After a few minutes, through her tears, she looked directly at me and said, I just want to be forgiven and told that I'm a good person. I've wanted that my whole life. I've always liked helping people and feel best when I'm working at my job. I'm a social worker. Over the first four sessions, Harriet described how when consumed with obsessive thoughts, her thinking had a rapid circular pattern, which escalated her anxiety and became overwhelming. She described her circular thoughts as swirling around endlessly inside her head in a repetitious, torturous cycle, followed by a feeling of anxiety as increased pressure in her head and chest. After that, she felt compelled to criticize and complain to the person creating the perceived threat to others. I asked her how long she had been aware of this circular thinking and if thinking this way helped or made things worse. She stopped for a minute, looking a bit awkward and ashamed and said, complaining and criticizing only makes things worse. Instead of avoiding contact with my eyes, Harriet looked straight at me as if coming out of a fog and said, wait a minute, what do you mean? I asked her if she ever thought things through in a straight line instead of running around in circles. For example, 
walking straight ahead towards a goal instead of running around in a circle and getting nowhere. This hit home with her. The anxious, worried, and sad look melted away and was replaced with a look of relief. I now felt a deeper connection with her. With a soft look in her eyes and relieved, calm voice, she expressed appreciation for me listening to her seriously and understanding what she had to say. Over the next five sessions, Harriet asked me for definitive answers concerning her specific contamination fears. If I did not give a definitive and clear answer to her questions, she became irritated, expressing this with a bristly voice and an angry, demanding look in her face. That's not good enough. You're not answering my question. In a soft, calm voice, I said to her, it's okay to tell me these things. I won't get angry with you. In the fifth session, I had Harriet lie on the treatment couch to help her feelings come more to the surface. I had her breathe deeply in and out. Her irritation with my inadequate answers became more intense, but she was not capable of expressing her anger and dissatisfaction with me more fully. I saw her holding back her anger. At the same time, I wondered how I could help her express her anger. Then it came to me. I asked her, do you curse? Yes, I'm the effing queen of cursing. This led to an intense discharge of anger with cursing, shouting, kicking, and hitting on the treatment couch. Afterwards, Harriet told me how relieved and relaxed she felt. After the fifth session, I saw Harriet on the treatment couch only infrequently. This was because she had previously discharged enough anger, which allowed her to be able to look more clearly at what she was feeling and was now able to see that an important part of the function of her circular thinking was to run away from her husband. She saw that her complaining and criticizing was her way of trying to reduce her anxiety, but resulted with her husband being impatient, intolerant, angry, and more distant from her. This in turn brought back her circular thinking, obsessive thoughts, and anxiety. And then the whole cycle would start all over again, with the result that Harriet became stuck in it all, miserable and unable to extricate herself from all of this. To give Harriet relief from her anxiety, I offered her the option of simply calling me to criticize and complain as often as she wanted or needed to. When she called, I listened to her criticisms and complaints without trying to correct or criticize her and asked her if she was thinking 
in a straight line. This discharge of negative feelings in a therapeutic setting kept the criticism and complaining within her therapy rather than leaking at, out on her husband with destructive results. This proved quite helpful. Harriet called me three to four days a week for a few weeks. This decreased slowly and steadily as she was increasingly able to tolerate the anxiety her not complaining caused until two months later, she stopped needing to call me between sessions at all. As a result, her husband became warmer and more attentive to her. By repeatedly pointing out her circular thinking, Harriet started to think things through in a straight line, which allowed her, with increasing frequency, to answer her own questions about what to do. When a therapeutic leak is identified, it is necessary to gain the patient's cooperation to eliminate the leak by helping the patient first see that the leak exists and second, see the function of the leak in their emotional life. In this case, the therapeutic intervention was having the patient phone and complain to me so it did not leak out on her husband. I believe if the above therapeutic intervention had not been applied, Harriet would have continued to criticize and complain to her husband. He, in turn, would have become more distant and her anxiety and obsessive thoughts would have worsened. Please join us, Dr. Christ. Thank you, Dr. Heller. It's a wonderful case and wonderful focused um, uh, vignette about what can go on in, in therapy. And I wanted to give some general comments about that. And, and actually, I think I'd like to ask uh, Dr. Burrett to join us now while I go ahead and, and give a few comments about it. And then we'll get into uh, some specific questions from uh, the audience and uh, other things. But we have used the term a different kind of psychiatry. So I think people are often asking, what's different about medical organ therapy? And as I was thinking about this case, I realized it's easy for us to slip into sort of a mechanical way of looking at it. it's different techniques. It's doing, um, I mean, we talk about tools that we have of character analysis, um, working on the person's muscles, working on their breathing. But what, what really is different about our approach is the way we look at patients, that we're looking what we call um, a functional approach, looking at how does nature actually function. And so we're all born as a bundle of energy, um, as, as babies, and something happens so that the natural movement of our uh, energy and our emotions gets disturbed. And then uh, the, the whole natural uh, process of, of just being able to go about our lives gets disturbed. And what you've described, I think one of the key things is you differentiated, instinctively differentiated between a primary emotion that needs to be 
just dealt with in life versus a secondary one, a neurotic one that's coming from the person's character. And, and since I, I thought about this case, I realized it would be easy to think the, the technique is to tell patients to stop complaining to their husband, but that's not the point at all. The point I think you quickly evaluated by understanding this patient was that she was spilling her own neurotic problems onto her husband that don't belong in that relationship. So even when you said, I think uh, negative emotions need to be expressed in therapy, I think there are negative emotions that need to be expressed in a relationship if they are natural primary frustrations that need to be addressed. But you identified that hers were not that and those belong in therapy rather than getting spilled in, into the marriage. So there's, there's a lot more I think we can come up with, but you had mentioned yourself uh, when we talked about this case, the importance of a patient developing self-regulation. And I'd like you to comment about that and then we'll see what other questions people have. Sure, thank you, Dr. Christ. The fact is that when she, when Harriet would call me, she was not only complaining, but criticizing, but asked what she should do. Mm -hmm. Over time, it became apparent that that was a result of circular thinking. When her thinking became more straight and directed, she was able to answer her own questions, thus regulating her own life in a more productive manner. Mm -hmm. Dr. Chris, if I could jump in for a moment, you know, when you were saying what you did, it made me think of um, a, a patient I've been seeing and she had a problem with her boyfriend and I had to encourage her to speak up to him to, to voice her complaints and she needed to do that and she did successfully. But then something else came up, an interaction with him triggered something in her that had nothing to do with him and she wanted to to express that to him. And when we were talking about it, she was confused thinking, wait a second, you told me I'm supposed to talk to him about my problems. And we were, and, and she was insightful enough that we were able to talk about um, something that has nothing to do with him that may be brought up just spontaneously through an interaction um, that uh, needs to be expressed in her therapy with me rather than with her boyfriend. And it was like a, a light bulb went off, you know, she got it um, that there's, emotions that have a time and a place to be expressed in relationship, uh, even if they're brought up there, and there are times that it needs to be dealt with in therapy. And I think this case highlights that, and, and what you mentioned was, was very spot on, Dr. Christ. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the, the key thing in, in that is the <clears throat> principle we talk about is distinguishing primary emotions from secondary emotions and primary healthy expressions and impulses from secondary neurotic ones. And, and if a therapist can't distinguish those two, um, then it, it, it will create chaos in the person's life. So that is a, a key difference in uh, conceptually of what we understand of what needs to happen in therapy. So, Dr. Heller, I wonder if you could comment on the importance of expressing negative emotions about the therapist to the therapist. You mentioned a little bit about that uh, in your vignette. Yes, thanks for asking. It's easy for people to say nice things about their therapists because it avoids any kind of confrontation or feelings of discomfort 
or awkwardness. But when you can get to the point with a patient to allow them to feel safe criticizing what you're doing or what you're saying or how you look, it allows them more freedom of expression of what's been bottled up during the week in the outside world. You know, I was thinking when you uh, read the case, um, there was something that I think maybe um, is important to point out. You asked her, do you curse? And you didn't say, you know, I want you to, um, for instance, you, you said she, you realized she was holding back, but you didn't say you're holding back or uh, tell me how you feel. It was a like simple, innocent question in a sense. And that's what allowed her to express that. You know, it sounded like it was important that you asked the question the way that you did and you allowed her to come out a little bit more with you in that way. Maybe you could say something about that. Yes, that was instinctual. It felt to me like she wanted to curse, but couldn't because she's too good of a person. You know, good people don't curse in front of their doctors. So by asking her that question, it was like giving her permission to do something that she wanted to do without instructing her or leading her on. Yeah, I was, yeah. yeah. was going to make a comment um, about what you said, Dr. Bird, as well as what you said, Dr. Heller, is another key thing uh, is our understanding in the field of ergonomy of what anxiety is. Anxiety is the feeling we have when an impulse is blocked and turns back on itself. So it's, it's not about something, it's just that um, emotion that we feel when that happens. And so the solution to it, uh, all too often in uh, other approaches, is to either dull that excitation uh, with medication or to distract the person or get them to do something with it. And our approach is to understand the, the charge in that person is behind that block and rather than avoiding the anxiety, we need to help them see what's in the way of them expressing it. And again, differentiating a primary emotion that needs to be expressed in her marriage versus uh, one that's coming from her pent up blocked emotions. And you allowed her to express that and discharge that. So the anxiety is not the problem, it's how people handle it. And that's really a very big difference in what we do in, in medical ergotherapy and helping people uh, deal with anxiety. We have a question from the audience. Um, so I'll answer and then pass it on to both of you. And the question is, what is a negative emotion? And I like that this question was asked because it's probably incorrect to, to categorize emotion into positive and negative as if you know, happiness is positive and, and anger and rage is, is negative. Uh, but I think just practically with the context of what we're saying, we're talking about negativity, criticism, aggression, nastiness, but um, it doesn't mean that one is, you know, morally good or one is morally bad. Um, but Dr. Heller, Dr. Chris, maybe you could say more. Go ahead, Dr. Heller. I'll let you start. <laughs> okay. Um, I think it's a very good question, and uh, it exposes maybe an error that I made in identifying these emotions as negative. What I meant by that 
is difficult or uncomfortable rather than uh, comfortable, expansive, and pleasurable. Some of these emotions like anger or jealousy or uh, things along those lines are not what people would typically call pleasurable and they're uncomfortable and awkward to bring up and potentially very destructive if said out of proportion and out of perspective to the current situation. And I'll defer to Dr. Christ to maybe further answer that question. One of the things that struck me about this case is that we have two fields that we actually train people in at the college, medical ergonomy and social ergonomy. And this is actually a wonderful case that, that illustrates that borderline between those two. And I would call medical ergonomy is, is um, the approach of helping people make better contact with themselves, with their own emotions, overcoming their internal blocks. Social ergonomy is about overcoming the, the things that interfere with their relationships. So you were addressing both in, in this situation. And the, one of the key principles in the, that we talk about in social ergonomy, it doesn't matter what somebody says, their intentions, what matters is the actual effect. So um, the, the person asking the question, what is a negative emotion, I think uh, hits the nail on the head, is it's easy for anybody to get moralistic. This is good, that is bad. But what matters is what is the actual effect in determining is it good for this person at that moment in this situation? Is it bad for that person? And I, I would prefer to use the term, does it work for the person? Does it help them live better? Or does it interfere with them living in a, in a deeper way? So I, I often hear people categorize emotions as positive and negative. And I don't know which ones to call which, because there's some people that think sadness is a, is a positive emotion because you need to express it, but others that think sadness is a negative emotion because you shouldn't express it. And, and same with any of the emotions. So, uh, yeah, the, the questioner is, I think, right on target to uh, question our use of the words negative and positive. So we have another question from the audience. Um, it seems that the trust, it seems that trust is important for a patient to be able to express emotions in therapy. For real contact to be made, I imagine there has to be some kind of genuine connection between the therapist and the patient and that it works in both ways. Uh, how do you handle meeting a patient for the first time so that you don't feel, uh, how do you handle a patient that you don't feel you can connect with initially? Um, has that come up and, and what, how may you address it for instance? Good question. Um, I was struck by saying not every therapist can treat every patient. And that part of the assessment uh, evaluation is whether or not the therapist and the patient can work together. Is there room for trust? Can trust actually be established and earned? Because it shouldn't just simply be given. It needs to be earned by the therapist and by the patient. If that's not possible, maybe the fit of those two people wouldn't work. Yeah, I, that, that's a, um, a great way of looking at it, Dr. Heller. And, and I would add to that, 
Um, many people know I love the, the origin of words for what they tell us, but trust and truth come from the same word root. So there can't be trust if there isn't uh, truth. And in my evaluation of patients, one of the things that I'm always uh, following, and I even tell them, the patient that, uh, that I'll do several sessions of an evaluation. And um, one of the reasons I would not see somebody is if I couldn't find something that I genuinely liked about their, their core nature. And I look at the person's healthy core nature, their character and their personality. So if I can't find something to genuinely connect with, then I, I, I'm worse than trying to fight a battle up a hill. Uh, it just won't work. Uh, so that's another area of what I was talking about is if we can connect with the healthy core of the person, we have a chance of, of helping uh, ally with that so that they can overcome the things that are in the way so they can live their lives fully and more spontaneously. What I would just add is that um, if, if that uh, concern comes up, I think it's especially important to focus on finding that connection, like Dr. Chris said. So for instance, in psychiatric training, a lot of it is making sure you have information, you know, what are the symptoms? What's the background? But I think before you get to any of that, you need to have a connection with the patient. And um, so if that problem comes up, I think oftentimes we have to put the information aside and just establish a connection in whatever way we can, uh, if possible. Um, and, you know, it makes me think, so I'm putting together the podcast and there's an upcoming episode that's a perfect example of, uh, Dr. Apple explaining just, in, you know, he needed five sessions basically just to make a connection with somebody and really feel like, uh, they were beginning therapy. Um, so, uh, I think that problem can come up, but that's what needs to be focused on. So here's another question from the audience. Dr. Chris mentioned primary as healthy and secondary as neurotic. Um, would you say the current social feelings are secondary? Is this too general? No. Was that, was there more to the question? That, that, oh, I'm yeah, okay. Yeah. Understand yeah. That. I mean, it's, uh, there's a simple answer to that and there's a more complicated answer. The simple answer is yes. The more complicated answer is yes and no. <laughs> that uh, we're, we're now entering the, the field of discussing uh, social ergonomy in a sense um, more specifically than, than medical ergonomy. And I, I don't think we should get too far afield from this, but again, underscoring the importance of making that distinction. And I would just um, finish that answer to that question by saying, uh, an awful lot of what has happened uh, recently on the social scene is that the facade that has hidden the secondary layer uh, has been broken through, fallen away. So we're seeing an awful lot of uh, neg uh, destructive secondary emotional expressions. But I, I do, I absolutely have no doubt that everybody still has those primary core uh, healthy impulses, and they've unfortunately been pushed aside recently. There is a, a psychiatrist who asked a question when we were talking about the importance of a patient expressing um, 
critical or angry uh, feelings toward the psychiatrist. Um, it, he's mentioned having difficulty being able to do that. He may ask that question, um, but how might you elicit that from a patient or how might you uh, bring that up with a patient and do you have any difficulty with that? Well, in, in this particular case, I could point out that when Harriet would ask me specific questions about a particular form of toxin uh, or radiation, and she was quite knowledgeable and uh, highly educated about this, if I was unable to give her an adequate answer that was based on fact, she would get really angry, but I didn't lie to her. I didn't make things up because sooner or later when you do that, it's going to get exposed. So in order to gain her trust, I was simply honest with her. If I didn't know something, I'd tell her that. Yeah, and I think... Um that was one of my reactions in, in hearing your case, Dr. Heller, is um, you, you were just very available to hear uh, anything negative that she had to say. And, and if you want to look at technique, I think that's one of the basic techniques is, is truly being open to hear the, what the person has to say, not getting defensive ourselves, not judging what they say. Um, but there, there are some other um, if you want to call them approaches, techniques, um, uh, tricks that, that we all sort of learn along the way. And, and one was uh, taught to me by one of my teachers, Dr. Duval, years ago. And, and he would ask the patient, so let's clean it up. What do you, what do you have uh, against me? And they say, oh, oh nothing. I'm perfect? <laughs> So, you know, in any way to, to in, encourage the patient, but just even putting on, on the table, even if they don't say anything for years, is, tell, tells a crucial part of the picture that you're open to really hearing what they, they think and, and, and feel. There was a question that um, came in and it references um, some of Reich's writing about uh, the progress of therapy. And, and for instance, he mentions that uh, Reich, Reich wrote that in, in his days, you know, maybe 100 to 150 sessions was what was needed to, to truly help a patient, to heal a patient. How has that changed from your perspective, if that was true even then? Um, and how do you see therapy basically having changed from, you know, 100 years ago? Um, it's a kind of a broad, big question. <laughs> yeah. A small bite. Yeah, I think the simple answer to that question is people were generally healthier years ago. So it took less work to bring them to a, a higher state of health. Today, there is afoot a lot of things that get in the way of that especially those things in the social realm that Dr. Christ was referring to. Yeah, I, I would respond to that. Um, 
I'm, I'm not sure whether it's the people were healthier or unhealthier. They were absolutely different. And one thing I'm very sure of is that people were simpler a uh, hundred yes. years ago. Uh, and so um, most, I, I mean, I've given a lot of thought to that question because I've read Reich having said that. And I know that, you know, there are many therapies that go on um, far, far longer than, than that. Um, years longer than what Reich talked about. And one of the, the impressions that came to me, I, I love looking back at history, but I think Freud's discovery of the unconscious mind made people get much more sophisticated in their defenses. So uh, when Reich was initially working, you could bring something up and it didn't have to get fended off through these complex psychological uh, defenses that are much more common now. People have much more intellectual defenses. You'll, you'll even have patients say, oh yeah, that's my unconscious telling you that. You know, it's like, what? You know? <laughs> How about you? Where are you? So, so I, there's no question in my mind and, and that things are different. And I think it would be a mistake to say we should follow the way Reich did it, if we're really going to be functional, we have to look at what works and what works now, and we can compare it, but what works now I think is clearly different than what worked with Reich. What I would just add is there's another question. Um, someone's mentioning their own therapy and uh, sometimes there's confusion about what's uh, a healthy impulse to express and what's a neurotic impulse to express in therapy or to uh, tamp down in, in a certain circumstance. And I think that just how I think generally there's more confusion in things, things are less simple. I think it was clear back in the day of what was, what was something I had to hold back and not express and what was something that I wanted to express, but maybe I just couldn't for whatever, you know, even if the patient wasn't in therapy, they had a sense that this was something I need to express, but something blocked them. Uh, they were in touch with, with that part. But I think, um, what I've seen is, is people are less um, clear with things, just what is A and what is B, just that simple. And, mm -hmm. and that can be the, the, the starting point of therapy before you get into the deeper layers, I think. So in terms of how that affects therapy, that's gonna, you need to address that first. So that may lend itself to being a longer pro, uh, process. I think uh, uh, taking off from what you said, uh, something both what I was talking about, what you're talking about, Dr. Burrett, is, and we often uh, say that there's more ocular armor uh, in people, but the, what that really means is that people have much more complicated ways of looking at things and more uh, confusion. I think there is more confusion in general uh, in our world and in society about what's appropriate, what's not appropriate, what's healthy, what isn't healthy. Uh, and, and that contributes to confusion about when or what do you express. So there's no more questions from the audience. So uh, Dr. Chris, Dr. Heller, any final thoughts you'd like to bring up and discuss with the audience before we finish today? Well, I think the questions that did come our way were excellent ones and gave us an opportunity to clarify and educate, which I think is our primary function here. It was a pleasure presenting this case and uh, interacting with the audience. 
and I hope they gain something by it. If they have any further questions, they can always call our headquarters in Princeton. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, and I, Dr. Heller, I just want to thank you for presenting the case and, and underscore uh, again, um, part of what the college is doing is emphasizing more of looking at the social realm. In fact, we're, we're putting together an event in October to just talk about how much the college is doing to try to educate people about that realm. And I think this is really, as I said, a great case that illustrates the importance of understanding the interactions between people as well as the individual therapeutic parts. So thank you very much, Dr. Heller, for presenting and Dr. Burt for joining us as host. How do you feel after listening to this case and discussion? What do you think? I think this was a wonderful therapy vignette that can help remind us that sometimes we have neurotic, secondary feelings that come up and cause problems in relationships. Imagine how much more satisfying relationships could be if we were all clear on which impulses need to be expressed to our loved ones and which ones kept to ourselves or addressed in therapy. The other aspect of this case I wanted to highlight was that Harriet was complaining of what many would call OCD. She had obsessive thoughts about contamination. Dr. Heller expertly avoided falling into the trap of treating a patient mechanically based on her symptoms and he was able to treat her successfully because he looked at her problems and her way of dealing with her feelings in a functional way. I hope you'll check out one of our live monthly webinars. You can connect with us at Organomy.org or a psychiatry.com. If you like our work, be sure to leave a rating and review. The best way to help the ACO spread its knowledge is by helping others know about us. I'm Dr. Chris Burrett. Thank you for listening to In Contact with the ACO. Since 1968, the psychiatrists affiliated with the American College of Organomy have been helping patients discover greater satisfaction, health, and overall well-being in their lives. Whether patients suffer with mental illness, struggle with addiction, or feel unsatisfied with their work lives or relationships, medical organ therapy as practiced by the physicians at the ACO offers a way forward, often without the use of medication.